Hello, listeners. Before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about a survey that we're running so that you can give your feedback on the show. If you could spare just a couple of minutes to help us out, we'd really appreciate it. Just click the link in the episode description or go to thisstudyshows.com. Thank you. I'm Mariano Hotter. And I'm Dan George. Welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. This week, how SciComm brings power to the people. We're thinking about how effective science communication can empower communities to live happier, healthier lives. And we wanted to kick off the episode with a special guest who was recommended to us by Sunshine Menezes in our inclusive SciComm special. Here's the clip. So I am thinking of the work of Monica Ramirez Andriota, who is at the University of Arizona. And so she's interested in environmental monitoring around Superfund sites, you know, these legacy polluted areas um, in the U.S. that have been identified as places that needed to be cleaned up so that people could actually live there and be healthy. Um, so uh, nearby, she created a collaboration with a community that lives near a Superfund site in Arizona. And they wanted to be sure that they could actually grow vegetables, you know, that they could have gardens safely. So the research was this co-created thing from the very beginning where a community identified their needs and their research questions and in collaboration said, okay, well, let's craft a research project that is serving the community and, um, and, and not doing something for the community, but with the community. And they've been just massively successful with this effort. I'm just I'm so impressed by the work that they've done. And we have Monica joining us now. Monica, hi. Hi, how's it going? Would you say that lovely summary is a good characterization of your work? Yeah, I mean, it's well, one, it's an incredible honor to have Sunshine speak so highly of the work. Um, I would say that it uh, it is a good synopsis of the work, right? It's in the way that these projects come about is that the number one or what's most important is to meet people where they are and to listen. And in doing that type of listening, you hear the type of challenges as well as actually very um, important and critical observations that community members are making of their local environment. And in this regard, we acknowledge uh, Dr. Corborn's work, right, in street science, acknowledging like community members are experts in their own right because they live there and they're making these ongoing day-to-day -day observations. And so it's with that, the spirit of that and these observations, right, which are fundamental to scientific investigations that community members have very good and critical and important research questions that should be answered. I just want to pick up on something that, that Sunshine mentioned about your work and this idea of, of doing something with a community rather than for them. Why does that matter? So the reason why that matters is there's uh, several. One, one is, again, that recognition of, the, of these are partners, right? That these are collaborators, colleagues, and partners. So under there's a couple of frameworks, right? Community-based participatory research, participatory action research. Within the field of community citizen science, there's like a spectrum. And so what I would say is when you start to do more collaborative co-creation is where you actually can lead, you can see more changes when we talk about environmental health literacy. 
And when we talk about environmental health literacy, we want to see outcomes in knowledge, awareness, uh, environmental literacy, numeracy, science literacy. You want to see people taking steps and action to protect their health and to um, understand more about the environment. And then the outer sphere is what we call the community, where we would see hope to see some type of community level action. And so if you're seeking to have that level of scaffolding and, and change and sustain change and, and strive for structural change, you want to be working with because you want to recognize the as experts in their own right. Mm -hmm. You want to collaborate because of their like ongoing observations and living there. It just seems silly not to collaborate, right? Like, I don't yeah, think, you know, it I, just I'm... seems like the right, it's just like the ethical, it's the ethically right thing to do. You want to have site-specific data to inform the project, right? And you want to ensure that the products of the project are actually helping and that they can use it to inform their local and, and you know, regional estate, maybe even federal decision-making, right? If you want to ha see those types of change, you really do need to work with. What was the first community project you ever did? Tell us the story about that and, and what sort of yeah. fail fast and learn moments you had along the way. You want the very, so the one that Sunshine's referring to is Garden Roots, right? But my very first, interestingly, I was working at a science center and I was, they wanted to build this whole new science center for Tucson, Arizona. And they were like, oh, like we have Monica, like, you know, they're native to Tucson and they speak Spanish and they're Mexican. Like, let's have them lead like a community <laughs> project. And he was like, there's a lot of issues in that museum space. But regardless, they were like, we want to know what the community, when the community thinks of science, what do they think about? And they're like, so go set up, find these people so we can understand how they see science. And so I was like, Okay, you know what? Cool. That's so <laughs> what I ended up doing is just like looking as working with neighborhood associations, right? They wanted me to go to like existing museums, like go to here and identify. I was like, you're going to get the same type of people there. Like, we need to go like where people are, meet them where they are. So, like, community centers, senior centers, um, YMCA, YWCA, like different places, and just started talking to them about, like, you know, when you think of science, what do you think? Uh, what does it mean to you? And it was really, really beautiful. I mean, it was disheartening at the same time where people became experts in cancer and different health outcomes because of the suffering of a loved one. Mm. Um, definitely because we're in Arizona, we have this dry, clear skies, right? A lot of people talked about astronomy and stargazing. We had people, again, you know, talking about growing food and hearing all these stories of the way people connected with science and then being able to bring that and say, okay, here's this, like, let's make sure that this is in this new museum space. That was my one of my very first uh, community engaged projects, I would say, or community engagement projects. And and it, it was in that work that I learned about citizen or community science in around 2004, 2005. And I was like, whoa, this is very exciting to think about. And then I switched jobs and I became a research translation coordinator for a large National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences grant. Mm -hmm. And in that position as a research translation coordinator, my job was to be the liaison between the science being generated by the research program to the end user. And the end user could be broadly defined a variety of different stakeholders. And so in this case, I was very much committed to the people living in these spaces. I mean, as well as like government agencies, because it's critical that we all work together in this. And so I've been nurturing with EPA, like our federal environmental protection agency in the state, and they brought to my attention this new site that was being listed. So this is a super fun site, which means that it will be on the national priorities list, meaning that there will be a tax dollar or, you know, money's going towards the cleanup, the management and cleanup of this uncontrolled waste site. 
And so their EPA got it. So community members like worked hard, right, to get this listed. And then EPA was like, it got on the list. And then in August, 2008, I went to that first meeting hosted by EPA and just sat and took notes on all the questions and comments that uh, community members were raising. And a common comment was, are like, how are my soils? Are my soils safe? Can I grow food here? And if so, how much can I eat? That became the seed where after that, you know, during that meeting, after I was taking notes and everyone was done, I introduced myself, my role, and then um, met with those, those couple individuals and said, you know, that's a really cool research question. I don't have site-specific information, but are you interested in working together? Hmm. And they're all like, sure, you know, like, why not? Like, they're very kind and sweet mm-hmm. and like thought and and, you know, I kept maintained contact. Um, they shared that with others, they knew that this could be a possibility. And it took me a couple years, right? I started my PhD to do this, uh, to make this my PhD project. I was able to get an EPA, um, like Office in Research and Development grant to support the work as well, well as other fellowships to support my education. And and I still work with them today. So we oh, still, I manage the, yeah. So like, even when I was in Boston, I left, I graduated um, they had a community meeting. They flew me back um, to the area. And then I was recruited to come to U of A again. So I've been working with them since 2008. And it's an honor. That is a long-term commitment. When we're talking about people power, when we're talking about science being used as a tool to increase social justice, to increase science literacy, to you know make everybody's lives better, how much does it require someone like you, like a a specific charismatic individual who not only understands the science and has the respect of their peers, but, you know, genuinely is, Mm. is, is in it for the long term and is properly invested in the work. Does everyone need a Monica? Yes. Okay. I'm all, yeah. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. No, I think, well, one of the, so when learning about community-based participatory research, one of the principles is sustained engagement. And that is a important requirement because you you as a so in an academic space right traditionally you could be driven by your grants right you're like oh it's five years five years that's how i'm be there mm-hmm. and that is not you can't do that in this type of work right and you you can't um be driven by the funding cycle you need to be uh wholeheartedly committed and I think that I would. I think that that's a spirit and culture that needs to be um, expressed more fully in an academic setting. And so, if you so that was something I had to make a decision about very early. And I, I was like, "What did I go to school for? This is ridiculous!" Like I'm, I went to school to like do something, right? Like I don't. I want to apply research. I want to cr- like see something happen. But, you know, there's nothing like especially like one community. I remember this like my, you know, my community colleague, right, was like, Monica, I see this dust cloud every morning, every morning, this dust cloud from this place making decorative rock for the Richies in Phoenix, Arizona, right, for the affluent <laughs> community. And he's like, every morning. And he's like, that can't be right. And I was like, take a picture, take the picture, send it to the state. And it they're not going to do anything. Take the picture and send it to the state. Ah, we'll see. Okay. You know, takes the pictures, sends it to the state. I'm not kidding. A couple weeks later, it calls me up. Oh my God. 
they went out there. They sent a state represent. They sent someone from the state to evaluate it. And that company got a notice of violation for fugitive dust. They actually did it. And so I was like, I told you, like, you got, like, you have some, like, this is, and so to me, like, that means more than, that means so much because one, we got to mitigate this fugitive dust, which we know is an issue in, I mean, Arizona, we got the semi-arid, arid region. We got, like, issues with dust in general. And so actually, when I was giving a talk to the committee, I was like, yo, get up here. You should share what you just accomplished. And so, like, super proud, right, gets up there and was like, I was able to get a notice of violation. And for me, it's like, dude, I could, I could retire, right, with that. (laughs) How do you extend that beyond your personal reach? I mean, the work that you're doing is obviously hugely valuable, but how do you kind of spread that through a network? Yeah, so definitely that's why working with people in the community is is really critical because you have what we call the community champions, right? So there'll be these, like, what we, the community champions are the ones that can, like, spearhead it in their spaces. And then you also do what we call peer education or the train the trainer model. So you, so you can have these community champions and, or in addition, community health workers or promotoras, right? So in the uh, Latina, Latino, um, Latinx, right? Communities is the promotora model, which is this community health worker that serves as this, they, that they work with the, in this case, the university, and they become the knowledge broker to the community and the targeted communities in which you're working with because they are indigenous to those spaces. They understand the cultural idiosyncrasies and they're trusted. And so when you work with these people that serve in these spaces, it truly helps to help to disseminate and to build, right, these like roots and systems and connections and networks. It feels like a sort of a paradigm shift in, in how science and information is, is being generated or, or could be generated. Are there any downsides, do you think, to, to this sort of um, citizen science approach yeah. to science? Because it all sounds really, really good. Are there any downsides? So I think that, you know, one thing that's happened throughout the years of doing this kind of work is where I would celebrate, like be celebrating every participant. Some participants, because of the culture of their being in a mining community, don't want to be identified. If I were to summarize downsides in this type of effort, one is that when you're doing environmental monitoring and data sharing and and the science communication at a detailed level, you need to be uh, consent, you need to be transparent and consent every participant or a community partner in understanding the implications of having that data. You're going to get data back from your home that if you were to want to resell it or you were going to have young children over or immunocompromise, you would have to disclose. Or it possibly, because they're already near Superfund sites, their property values are most likely going down, right? And so that level of doing this type of, you know, this bidirectionality and partnership is like being really, really crystal clear of like when we generate this data, this is all the different things it can do, right? But these are all the different challenges it could pose for you. The other thing that's coming up right now too is like, is the data side, like there's so much data, community collected data. And then there's so much government state, like, you know, local, state, and federally collected data. And so one is like just democratizing and having people have access to all of that. Yeah. Because Imagine what happens when you start merging these massive data sets with site-specific information and all this other stuff. Like, it could really revolutionize how you look at, like, you know, community uh, resiliencies, like strengths and, like, where their vulnerabilities are, but where they have the strengths. And so that's another big project um, we're working on right now, which is a 
uh, funded through the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences to look at community science, merging community science with state and federally collected data sets to have a level of interoperability to trip to inform decision making even more. Wow. I very much look forward to following your work. Yes, absolutely. Great work and power to the people for sure. Yeah. Thank you. It's extraordinary the scope of Monica's work, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, I was I was struck particularly by her saying that you just can't be driven by the funding cycle if you really want to make lasting change happen. You kind of have to commit yourself for what a decade. Yeah, it it feels like she's had to make some sort of career choice, doesn't it? You know, it's sort of can she progress in her career, or does she stay where she is and? and really sort of make a lasting impact in one project. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that comes back to a, a, a perennial a perennial topic of discussion on this study shows, doesn't it? Which is what is actually rewarded in science and research? Yeah. Is it ticking the boxes and kind of following the protocols? Or is it, why are you a scientist in the first place? Is it because you want to improve things in the world for people? And it's it's incredibly tough to think that some people are going to have to choose between those th- two things. It, it doesn't feel right, does it? Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And I think if, if more people were like Monica, you know, and did sort of devote to one project that made such a, a huge impact to so many people, then it may shift that dial, I think. Yeah. And it changes, doesn't it, who is a scientist who looks like a scientist, what scientists do, because it, it challenges fundamentally the sense of elitism and abstraction that you often get in science and research. Yeah. Because someone like Monica is totally embedded in the community, but she and clearly has such a depth of, of expertise, but mm. also speaks to her citizen scientists as peers, which is... What what an astonishing thing to be able to do, as well as have the the capacity and technical skill to actually push the research forwards. Um, because then, you know, there's going to be kids, there's going to be families in those communities who are looking at her and her her team of researchers saying, oh, that's that can also be what a scientist looks like. Maybe that is something that's for me. And that ultimately feeds into who becomes a scientist, yeah. who chooses to study science and continue as a career. Okay, let's hear another example of how science can bring power to the people. Esther Nagumbi is an assistant professor in entomology and African and American studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, she's also the founder of a startup called Oyeska Greens. Now, Esther was inspired to study this area of research as a result of her first-hand experience of the difficulty of farming on the Kenyan coast. Growing up as a child, we would go to the farm and most of the time we would not be uh, putting the best of uh, the varieties. Then halfway through, uh, we would watch all our hard work go to waste. Reason being pests would come. What pests hadn't taken drought would. And I wondered uh, how best can I, can my family uh, work to ensure that Every effort we make, at least we get 50% of the crops. And I realized also that uh, when you have the knowledge, then you're able to work smarter. You're able to make the most of, of what's available. 
And this is what allowed me and truly inspired me to uh, start this uh, Oyeska Greens, because I grew up seeing these challenges. Through her research and the work of Oyeska Greens, Esther empowers her community with the skills they need to feed themselves sustainably. In recent years, the changing climate has presented significant challenges. Climate change has uh, changed, first of all, the frequency of rain. It has also increased uh, droughts, flooding, and also uh, insects, which uh, eat uh, almost 50% of the food. So all these challenges that affect our ability to grow food uh, sustainably and grow food to be able to feed ourselves are becoming ever more increasing. I still remember growing up when uh, rains would come every April, every October. You know what? That has changed. For example, it's already April and the Kenyan coast right now hasn't had rainfalls. And what that means is the farms are dry. Farmers can't grow any food and it's really hot. So the temperatures also are extremely, extremely high. What does that mean is uh, families are going hungry. Almost over 60% of the population is depending on farming. The thing is, there are solutions to these problems, but they're just not being shared. Unless you communicate your great research to the people who will benefit from it, it's wasted. We have all these uh, technologies that are de uh, they're delivered every day. Research is uh, showing these solutions. But are they, uh, uh, most of the times, farmers don't know about them. So there's that bridge of knowledge. And if they know about it, they're not actually getting everything about it because uh, somebody is just telling them and sometimes they're not telling them the right way. And so we thought, okay, it is even more important if we teach by demonstration. So we grow these improved varieties. We have the technologies. So you can come actually and learn, learn by seeing, and you can come back again and again mm. because we are in the community. So if you go and you forget, you can come back tomorrow. If you go and forget, get after one month, you can come back and, and learn again. So we are truly just uh, ensuring that farmers have every knowledge that they can. They have, at least we can uh, share all we know. It's, it's very practical what, what you are doing, you know, so, so you want to show people, not just tell people. How important do you think that is in the farmers sort of getting on board with this? I think it's so important because, first of all, you know, when you think about a scientist, there's already that, okay, scientists are just such important people. Let's not bother them. Let's let's not, you know, really try to just view them as, as just ordinary people that actually want and are working to ensure that the challenges that farmers have are uh, taken care of. So I think it's important for us scientists to realize that you know, at the end of the day, I think I consider that my science will have impact if the end user for me is the farmer, mm. is able to understand or at least to uh, to take away, uh, say, 50% of uh, the message that I'm, or the work that I am doing. 
And so it's important also not to separate yourself from them. It's important to uh, to continue uh, mingling with them and working together because, uh, you know, traditionally uh, science has already been divorced from the communities. Mm. And that's wrong because everything is changing by the day. And so if I'm not connected also to the farmers, most chances are I'll be working on things that are probably not so important to the farmers. So I think for me, it's truly important as scientists to uh, ensure that we are connected to our end users of the technology or the results that you're going to have. How, how much difference has this made already to, to farmers on the Kenyan coast? It's, it's made a tremendous difference. I think since 2014, we've worked with thousands of farmers. And yeah, it's they keep coming back to learn more. And for us is when we see them uh, actually taking what they can afford to their homes, mm. practicing it. For me, that is impact because you've uh, allowed them to uptake some of the recent uh, technologies and they start doing it in their farms. So the future is amazing. I'm so excited every <laughs> good, day. Good, good. I'm glad. Yes. It's fundamental, isn't it? You have to share your research with the people in a way that they can absorb, that they want to get on board with, and then you really start to change people's lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Esther is doing so much to empower people on the Kenyan coast, you know, not only in terms of farming, but also in education too. Listen to this. She's established a school there, which she hopes will one day become Africa's Harvard. It started with nothing. We had just this uh, mad building uh, that had 14 students and we've grown the compound. And yes, I'm not stopping until uh, that uh, compound is Africa's future Harvard. We will be sharing uh, agricultural knowledge. We are training uh, people in the community and that are aware of the challenges uh, that uh, every person is facing. And so I think it's going to happen. I dream big, but it is going to take uh just step, smaller steps. We started from nothing. Uh, 10 years later, it's a full compound. We have at least over 100 students that come into class and we're just growing. And I think that I'm so excited because just being able to allow community members to feed themselves with food security, I know then their time is free. They can start to uh, discover. And, and I'm just, I'm actually very excited. Okay, Dan, our final piece of people power comes from a project based in China. Despite some pretty impressive progress on lifting millions of people out of poverty across the country... There are still around 300 million people in the rural areas of China who do not have consistent access to clean drinking water. So it might be that the water isn't from a protected source and so it might be contaminated by animals or human waste, for example, mm. or the water is being contaminated from chemicals from agricultural industry. And it's not as obvious as um, a Superfund site in the US. It, it might be smaller scale, it might be a small rural community. and 
some of those chemical contaminants from agriculture and industry can be the most dangerous because they might not have any taste or smell. So you wouldn't even know that the water is bad until it made you sick or worse. I spoke to Inuo Wang and Nigel Zhang from My H2O. It's an organisation that's working to solve these issues by training teams of university students and members of the local communities to test their own water and then identify the issues. And then My H2O acts as a, a hub connecting them with government departments and other organisations so they can implement solutions. Here's Nigel. Mm. The people living in the villages do not have a great understanding of the water quality. The risks to water safety are from the geology, geography, agriculture, industry and so on. In some villages, some residents think that the water quality problems do not actually exist as they do not have a scientific background. And this is Inuo. So what we do measure in the field is to use the uh, equipment called panel test to test all the common standard drinking water standard for human. We usually test like the ammonia, the water temperature and the total dissolved solid, which is TDS in short. And usually we have the measurements to indicate whether there's surface runoff like from the uh, daily water sewage or from animal waste, something like that. However, we think the source of all the contaminants are very complex. And the challenge is compounded because, well, people are complicated, aren't they? If you've always drunk from that water source and there's no obvious better alternative, you might not even realise that there's a problem. And in fact, who wants to admit that they're so poor they're having to give dirty water to their kids to drink? So you might be in denial because it's a matter of, of pride. From my experience, I see three kinds of reactions. First, they say like, Okay, um, my father, my grandparents and I, we drink this water for years. We do not think it, it is a serious problem. And the second type is, okay, I know there's a problem, but we need resources to solve this problem. But I don't know why, because I don't have that kind of resources to solve, the, solve it. And the third second is like, they don't, they don't, uh, believe it or they don't care about it because there are so many other things for, the, for them to concern. Once you do realise the seriousness of the problem, what can a small village, so just a tiny part of a much bigger whole, actually do about it? Now, this is where the 21st century power of tech, wise psychology and the ambition of my H2O as a network really comes into its own. They use social media to recruit villages in the first place, and then they integrate that small-scale citizen data into a much bigger national picture. There are tens of thousands of villages in China, and it is very hard for the experts sitting in the office to identify like which village they want to go and where is the exactly where is the problem. So the residents the youth teams, the bottom-up uh, data source, they can provide like exactly where the village, which village has the water problems. So the experts can come and discover like what's the cause of the problems. And we can see that if we send university college students to the villages, the uh, villagers are more willing to cooperate with the researchers. Like if you just send some experts to the villages, maybe they will just like 
let you take the water sample and that's it. But we want something more, like we want the communications between the uh, experts and the villagers and even the solution providers. So far, over 180 youth teams across China have been involved in this kind of project. Over 1,000 young volunteers have done research in the villages. Over 1,000 villages have been researched. The teams have almost covered the whole China. Because the researchers have spent time and really invested in establishing relationships with the communities, they can work together to identify and implement the right solutions. So ones that people actually want and will use. For example, if they want clean water, like from a water station or a drinking fountain, we can provide them with this solution like they would use in the future. And if the villagers want something else, we can know from the uh, residents, from the youth teams. Instead of just the experts come and do some tests and um, tell something the villagers don't know and then go. So that's not the kind of thing that we want to see in the villages. I think what really comes out for me, Dan, in the three stories we've focused on in this episode mm. is that these folk are inspirational. Their work is to be hugely lauded, but there's a risk, isn't there, that we kind of say, oh, look at that heroic work that they're doing, and put them on a pedestal, and then the rest of us get on with our day-to-day -day lives, <laughs> focused on the kind of the, the funding cycle, the daily grind, where the next gig is coming from, you know, who else is working in your department, and to really transform science and make it universal and democratic, we have to all have a stake in making science relevant and not just kind of have heroes separate to what everyone else is up to. For all our guests, it must be easy for them to, to answer that question, you know, why, why are you doing your job? Because they, they just seem so happy and passionate about their work, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, you get a lot of job satisfaction, don't you? Knowing that you're actually making a difference. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for listening to another episode of This Study Shows. Please follow us on your podcast app. Leave us a lovely review. You can find out more information on the show at thisstudyshows.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, then you can tweet us at Wiley in Research. See you next week. Bye. This Study Shows is a listen entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Danielle George and me, Mariano Hotter. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.